Hello, and welcome to Wonderstruck. I am your host, Elizabeth Rovere. I'm a clinical psychologist, a yoga teacher, and a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. I'm really curious about our experiences of wonder and awe and how they transform us. On this episode, Father Francis Tiso returns for the second installment of our two-part conversation. As you may remember, Father Tiso is a Catholic priest, a renowned scholar of Tibetan Buddhism, and the author of Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, The Dissolution of the Material Body, and The Case of Kempo Acho. Last time, we talked about Father Tiso's extraordinary journey to Tibet, how to achieve a rainbow body, and what happens when Catholic priests and Buddhist monks get together to discuss foundational matters of their respective faiths. This time, in our final interview following last summer's Embodiment Symposium in Italy, Father Tiso reveals more about his personal experiences with wonder, from visions of Jesus Christ to encountering holy visitors in his dreams to soothing cancer patients with visualization and guided meditation, Father Tiso shares how his own spiritual practices and his pursuit of wisdom prepare him to embody different levels of consciousness. So Father Tiso, Francis Tiso, I've, you know, we, we spoke a bit last time about your book, The Rainbow Body and Resurrection, which is a fascinating account of Kempo Acho and the dissolution of the body and the rainbow light in the sky. So rainbow body, resurrection, death, lots of people, including myself, have trepidation and fear of death. My own mom had actually a near-death experience in, back in the, in the 70s. So let's just step right into it, if you don't mind, and talk about death. You've been close to so many things as a priest and as a contemplative and as a researcher and a writer. You've spoken to people who witnessed the rainbow body of Kempo Acho. You've sat with people who are near the end of their lives. You've had visions of Jesus and other visions as well. Your own artwork is inspired. Um, you mentioned you lost two friends in July. That's right. So how has all of this, and it's a lot, I know it's a lot, how has it informed you about life and death and to use your own words, post-mortem possibility? Yeah, I think it's very important to remember that although we're looking at a very special kind of death of a very outstanding person, in the case of Kenpo Acha, we're also looking at a community around him uh, and, and the responses of people to him as a person, as an extraordinary person, and of course also a response to his death, which in a way was putting the seal of, uh, of authenticity on everything that he stood for, okay? So uh, that in itself is already to move beyond just, you know, admiring unusual phenomena, right? Uh, we got into this even at the conference at uh, Instituto Lama Tsongkhapa in these days, seeing Donna Coleman's film on the Tukdam phenomenon. Okay. I don't know what that is. This is where you have uh, Tibetan monks or lamas who at the time of death breathe their last, do not manifest the rainbow body, but instead remain in a meditation posture with a kind of warmth around the heart area okay. for several days, even two or three weeks, without any sign of decomposition. And so uh, there was some uh, efforts on the part of Richard Davidson and his laboratory mm -hmm. to study this phenomenon in cooperation with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So uh, uh, Dunach, uh, who's been in touch with me over the years, did a rather splendid film on this subject. All right, and, and brought in the communities and the families and interviewed, uh, you know, re close relatives of the people who had. Wow. passed away and uh, what it meant to them, you know, and how how important the witness of these distinguished lamas was and then also the love that binds together the community 
around such a person, all mm -hmm. right? And of course, then they also, in one case, they actually showed the child who has been recognized as the incarnate Lama, who will carry on the spiritual energy of, the, of his predecessor, the so-called reincarnation, or tulku. Right. So there you have this little three-year-old playing around, you know, and being treated with immense love by people who knew the person whom they believed to be his previous incarnation. Wow. Right. Now that, that was pretty intense. Uh, and as well as there was a good deal of footage on on the, uh, the various deceased lamas. So right. this was in the and, movie? Yeah, right in All the movie. All of this. What yeah. is, do you know what it is exactly called? Uh, I just or think it's just called Tuktam. Yeah, and, okay. and uh, so that uh, is something really worth looking for. It is, yes. it, it's going to be out there in different uh, channels. I also tried in my book to look at the community, all right, and to look at the feelings of the community, the beliefs of the community. The interviews provide us a glimpse, but then also the participation, you know, in the life of the community. But then there are also things like even my own experience of uh, that moment of anger in, uh, on the 6th of August, two or three weeks after meeting with the Dharma brother of Kenpo Acha. So we meet with this very powerful, kind of feisty, you know, Lama, all right, really tough, almost crazy wisdom kind of Lama, <laughs> right? You know, who's challenging us. Well, you're just here with your Lhasa accent. <laughs> you know, you don't really understand what's going on. Uh, and, uh, and my team members are there, and Douglas Duckworth is translating, and a couple of relatives of Kenpo Acha are there, and they're all a little bit embarrassed by all this going on, you know. Uh, meanwhile, of course, there are people outside the window of the cabin waiting for a blessing. So the Lama, every once in a while, reaches out the window with a little flag that he had, and he blesses the people <laughs> while going on with us, oh, instructing wow. us in the correct attitude. Interesting. You know? And then at a certain point he said to me, all right. First, he gave an example of himself approaching a great Lama. And it was how you're supposed to do it, if you're really polite. Oh, <laughs> right? And you go before the Lama, and you look at the Lama, and you try to see if, there's any, if there are any spiritual signs on the body or the face of that Lama. So he said, I went to the big monastery in Kanze, and I saw a very good Lama, and I saw the Bodhisattva of Compassion on his forehead, and I prostrated to him and showed my respects to receive his blessing, all right? Now you, what do you see when you look at me? Wow, oh my goodness, wow. Okay. What do you see when you look at me? All right, then this is, you know, the other team members were a little shaken up by this. I bet. So I, I did look at him. And what I saw was actually, I didn't make this up. You know, I mean, I'm really looking at him sincerely, and I'm seeing in his bone structure, in his very massive, powerful presence, the same kind of strong uh, bone structure and fleshy appearance of the bishop who ordained me, who was a very, very dear, dear, dear master, a real master. And uh, I said, you look like the bishop who ordained me. Uh, he's from the Abruzzo, you're from Eastern Tibet, but you could be brothers. And uh, he really liked that, you know, he really liked that, because that was the respect for the teacher, the guru, right? Yes. Um, the, and they translated for it, for me explaining who this person was and how, why this person was important. And, you know, even, I will mention, I haven't mentioned this to other people, but at one point, I don't remember if it was during the research period, it must have been during the research period about the rainbow body, I had a dream in which that bishop, Bishop Di Filippo, actually appeared to me in the dream mm. dressed in a very unusual black robe. Okay? Mm. He had sleeves. And normally, uh, a Catholic uh, priest or bishop will have this black robe, you know, that's worn on certain occasions. And there's a, a, a wide hem 
on the sleeve. But it's usually either plain or there are a couple of buttons or something like that. Or if they're a bishop or a monsignor, they might be red. But this was black. But it wasn't just ordinary black. It was a black lace on black. Okay, black, really intricate black lace on black. Interesting. Okay, never seen this in any living priest. I've never seen this, all right? Right. So I did ask Bishop Di Filippo, you know, you, you paid me a visit, didn't you? And he said, oh, really? And I said, and you were wearing this cassock. Do you have one of those cassocks? Well, you know, I do. <gasps> He actually had a cassock like that with, with this black, black with weave, lace. this beautiful black intricate lace on the on the hem of the sleeves. Fascinating. That's incredible. <laughs> so, you know, there are these Did he uh, did he was he aware of having visited you exactly or no? He was very reticent about Reticent, a lot of interesting. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that wasn't the only. So almost like yeah. he was checking in on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was uh, he was a pretty amazing person. And uh, you know, like the really great you know, masters, I mean, they take the role that is assigned to them in life and play it to the fullest with all their heart, but they do not necessarily openly display paranormal powers. Right. 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 But they have them. <laughs> right. Somebody like that, you know. Yeah. That's really. Yeah, and did he pretty. in the in the dream? Did you see him? Did he say anything to you? Was he talking about anything? I think it was just like an encouragement just, dream. It was okay. not an admonition dream, which I probably deserved, but <laughs> but it was an encouragement dream, you know, where he was encouraging me to keep going, keep going, and doing what I'm doing, Fantastic. which is exactly what uh, Pope John Paul II did in person in 1992. Yeah. You know, in June of 1992, I went to, I got tickets from the Pontifical Council <laughs> for Interreligious Dialogue for the papal audience. Mm. Now, I had never wow. been in the special seats, all right, so I didn't know anything about the protocol, all right? So, <laughs> John Paul II was a very, very energetic guy, and this went on for hours and hours and hours, because not only give the speech in like 16 different languages, oh, no. but then he goes all around and greets all of the groups, you know, from the parishes and youth groups and all of that, and a lot of enthusiasm and so forth. So, we're sitting, myself, and a young Tibetan Kenpo, hmm. all right, he was the guy in charge of the young monks, he and I are seated in seats number one and two. All wow, right. that's so the special that seats. Yeah, right, the top, the top tickets, right? Yeah. But this is going on for so long, I said, by now, you know, by the time he gets to us, you know, he'll just wave and, and that'll be the end of that. But no, this is John Paul II. So he's as fresh as a daisy, huh. and he comes wow. in front of the two of us. And he introduces himself, asks me to introduce myself, and then he says, and who is this? And I introduce the Kenpo. And he, with tremendous vigor, and this is, he's a big, he was still a big guy, even after having been shot. Hmm. You keep doing this. He's pointing right at my heart. You keep doing this dialogue with these Buddhists. Ah, I love it. Yeah. Very, very clear. Like I always say, apostolic authority, you know. Mm -hmm. You keep doing this dialogue. And then I shook his hand, and it was really awesome because he had the yogic heat. <laughs> it stayed warm for like 20 minutes afterwards. Your oh, hand yeah. stayed warm. Yeah. Holy yeah. mackerel. He had the yogic heat. And boy, that stayed with me. Yeah, I yeah. bet. That's incredible. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I can feel it as you're talking about it. Yeah. It's just like... Yeah. Yeah, he was more than... Well, when you, what met the eye was already pretty impressive, but, you know, then there was on the surface. Well, and the fact that he's maintaining that kind of energy also yeah. with all of those people, and like you said, he gets to you, and he still is just like... Right. And he still heats you up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, th literally thousands of people, you know... Carrying on in various ways, I thought for sure, you know, that this that that was the end of that, but no, no, and it was really eager to see this happening. And later, of course, when I I, I did go to uh, Nepal, and uh, I ran into a uh, an interesting chap, British fellow, who was a Catholic, 
uh, and uh, he was in charge of the pension programs for the Gurkha regiments. All right, huh. you know the famous Gurkha Nepali Gurkha yes, regiments yes. that fought so brilliantly for the British in many many wars, and uh, so he said, "Oh, the Pope doesn't like what you're doing," and I said to him. Au contraire. He said to <laughs> he me. He just told me, <laughs> you better keep doing this. You know, that's, you know, that's, I, I have the apostolic command to do this. <laughs> that's okay. got to be so, I mean, that's so inspiring, right? Yeah, then it like yeah, transmits yeah. and it gives you energy exactly. to keep doing yeah. it. And even, you know, in the last few days being at, uh, you know, Instituto La Mazzoncapa with many people, you know, uh, very, very relieved and happy that there are Catholic priests who uh, are uh, actively interested in uh, Buddhist studies and Buddhist communities and uh, engaging in uh, in-depth dialogue. Well, it's like yourself, your mentor, Brother David, also very much so, who's yeah. also a Zen practitioner, right? Right. And then the, here we go with the Pope. I mean, I, it's not really the story that you hear about the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. so it's fantastic right. to hear it. It's like Catholicism, Buddhism, neuroscience. Mm -hmm. I mean, this kind of dialogue. I mean, we're asking, we're asking the same questions, right? Yeah, very much so, yeah. You know, what you spoke about with Pope John, Paul, and the feeling your, your arm heat up, looking at this idea of a monk dying and the, the heart stays warm, you know, and then kind of again, the body and the rainbow light. What does this mean to you about who we are and life and death? Yeah. Yeah, because now we have the, you see, when I was a child, I was around 10 years old, and none of our grandparents had yet passed away. It was another two years before my father's father passed away. But I was. I mean, it was some kind of a gym situation, you know, taking off or putting on my sneakers. And there was uh, Tommy Russo, I remember, you know, with a nice thick black hair and a nice crew cut, you know, way back then in 1960 <laughs> or 59. And I was saying, you know, Tommy, we're all going to have to die someday. <laughs> and Tommy turns to me and says, oh, Frankie. Uh, you, you're too young to be thinking about that stuff, <laughs> you know, with a nice New York accent. You know? <laughs> you're too young to be thinking about that stuff. And it wasn't like I was obsessed about death, but uh, in fact, you might say I was obsessed with life, regeneration, and the, the flowering of plants and birds yes, and trees yes. and the Ravenna mosaics and all of that. That was uh, an intimate part of my childhood because we lived in a kind of battered semi-urban neighborhood, mm. not far from the border of the Bronx, right? And everything is asphalt and concrete. But there were these vacant lots. And I would go there and collect stones and crystals and fossils and plants and moss and ferns and salamanders and put, put them in terraria and collect these things. And, you know, it was just absolutely passionate about nature and life. Right? But along with life, you do encounter dead salamanders and dead lizards and all of that. That's part of the experience of the enchantment of nature. Right? Mm -hmm. Because as a child, for me, there was no difference between nature as enchantment and nature as science. There was none of this split. I, I never had that. I never felt that. And so um, the, the death of creatures, the death of plants, the death of trees, and the death of people all somehow made sense. You know, it was all part of, of, of life, right? So later on, uh, when I was at uh, the, the Divinity School, and I'm doing, this was a very odd experience because nobody ever really explained to us, as I recall, although I may have missed something, that in your senior year, you're supposed to have written a th thesis of some kind, <laughs> all right? Uh, so all, I'm reading in the uh, instructions, oh, I'm supposed to write a senior thesis. Uh -oh. So, but I was already doing kind of a senior project as the student chaplain at what was then called the Sydney Farber Cancer Institute, which I think now is the, the uh, Farber Children's or something like that, Cancer Hospital. In Boston? In, in Boston, yeah. 
So I was already chaplain there, and I was actually working in one of the labs as well, as a, as the laboratory secretary. Hmm. So there I'm doing my hmm. biochemistry and oh doing my, my chaplaincy simultaneously. Wow. Yeah. And so again, enchantment. Science and, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah, science and religion, and enchantment yeah, and yeah. nature and science. And you got 35 beds. And everybody in there is in the latter stages of cancer, mm. and young and old. So there I am, 27 years old, you know, working with this reality, and trying to figure out how to absorb the feelings of people, not only the patients, but their families, that are going through a horrendous experience. Yeah. Okay? Chemotherapy, you know, experimental treatments, severe pain, uh, you know, imminent loss. I'll never forget the time. There was a young guy who must have been only a few years younger than I was, who had an athletic body, perfect athletic body, and there he was going to die. I'm looking at this, you know, it was really, really, it could get to you, you know? Absolutely. And so at the same time, Harvey Cox you know, the great yes. theolo theologian, the Baptist great theologian. theologian. Yeah. He was my advisor, and he was guiding us to do two hours of sitting meditation every day. So we made a commitment, a bunch of the students, we made a commitment to do that on top of everything else, and somehow we managed to do it. Yeah, it's a lot of time as oh, a student. Oh yeah, two hours is a long <laughs> sit, an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. But I did it, and as I'm working through the feelings, of working with these people who are dying and many levels of interaction because it's not only talking, there are the odors of a hospital, the odors of sickness, yes. the, the, the quality of, of a human being that's going through pain. You know, So taking that into the breath meditation the shamatha meditation, you know, wow. and of course being grounded by Brother David's instructions on Zen, right, which I had received seven years previous to that, and my practice of the rosary and Christian contemplation, my reading of the Cloud of Unknowing and Saint Bonaventure's The Mind's Journey to God, which is those are two of my favorite mystical works, and being able to take this in and then go back into the hospital day after day and try to be close to these people who are suffering. And one of the moments that I think was very helpful for me in terms of later work on things like Rainbow Body was there was a, um, an older man who came in with a very recent diagnosis of severe advanced liver cancer. All right, so he had six months to live. He was in a state of complete panic, and his family was in terrible distress. He hadn't slept or eaten for three days. They bring him into the hospital for his treatments, and he was really in a terrible, terrible state psychologically. So he's get him, they get him in the bed, and the nurses try to inject him with tranquilizers, and nothing is doing anything. Wow. So they called me in, and so I sat there with him, and I devised a guided meditation on the spot. And it was based on the five senses, and I had him imagine different scenes near a lake under the pine trees where there was light and color, odors, tastes, mm. and so on, touch, and guide him through the five senses in this imaginary beautiful place. And then at the end, I, I got him to respond with his finger to tell me, when you see that light, when you see the water scintillating, when you smell the pine needles, just raise your finger. And he started to calm down. Mm. And then at the end we did curialaisal, curialaisal, curialaisal. And by then he was ready to sleep. And the nurses are standing in the doorway and they can't believe their eyes, mm. you know. First of all, because they'd never seen anybody quite in a panic as bad as his. And then they never saw anybody being talked down that way. 
you know. And the head nurse, who was Native American, you know, we had some great conversations I after bet. that. Yeah, and how to how to train the nursing staff, how to train the doctors, how to engage uh, with patients and families in creative ways. And she was so thrilled that finally somebody, you know, had come around and recognized that there was a human dimension to be addressed in this whole treatment area. But the best part of it is that toward the end of the life of that man, came back for further treatments, right? I had made a tape of the meditation, which he took with him and played every day. And by the time he was ready to go, that man was glowing. Really? Yeah, that man was glowing. It was a very different person in front of me after three, four months of daily meditation of, of this kind. And his wife, my God, for years afterwards sent me cards and thanked me. That is so beautiful and, yeah. and profound. This is reality, see? This is reality. This is reality. You know? uh, it's not just a theory in a book. I wrote this up in my senior thesis and all of that, and I have used that meditation on a number of occasions since then with people who are dying. And, uh, and it does seem to help people connect with the inner structure, the subtle body structure, right, that we were talking about a few weeks ago, their own subtle body and their own capacity to overcome even death, to be strong in the face of death, but not just stoically strong, but deeply spiritually strong, and to reach the point of luminosity and gratitude, all right, in the true way that Brother David would have said himself, you know, the great stuff. Luminosity and gratitude, mm. and when you're talking about it, I'm associating to things like being connected to nature and the process of going back to nature, yeah. and like that's almost like the ground connecting to the spirit, yes, or evoking the spirit inside of us. And I have to ask you about this because in your Rainbow Body book, you talk about Romans eight. Is it something like that with spirit touching spirit? Yes, exactly. Can you explain that a little bit more? That's the uh, that's what I call the Bible. We should memorize. (laughs) There's like six or seven chapters in the New Testament that, and of course a couple of Psalms as well. But my basic mystics Bible, you know, includes Mm. the eighth chapter of Romans, Uh, and I even wrote a uh, term paper on the first 10 verses of that for Harvard. Oh, wow. <laughs> in, in, uh, with uh, the great late uh, Christopher Stendhal, wow. who was our teacher in the letter to the Romans. And in the great, in the great European uh, tradition of commentaries on that letter. But what I found in that letter, of course, was its mystical dimension. Uh, and, and clearly, the Spirit of God is touching our spirit, all right? And thus we know that we are the children of God, okay? So it's so different from a view that says human beings are fallen there in this collapsed state and they and from them has been washed out any capacity to respond to divine grace to the point that you have to be pumped up by divine grace in order to say yes to divine grace, all right? Which is in some ways, uh, you know, an overly dramatic uh, depiction of the of the situation, but it's also logically incoherent, because if you have to be pumped up to say yes, all right, um, then all is lost anyway, because you, you, there's no dimension of response. There's no uh, capacity to respond. All right, so uh, it's it's like you're a dead thing. Yeah. All right, and this uh, and you're this starting being, out a dead thing. You're starting out a dead thing, and this I think is what infects a lot of Christian preaching. And even though we Catholics, you know, are very proud to say, you know, that we don't believe in total depravity and all of this, nevertheless, there is a tone in the preaching of some of us that makes one feel as if 
the best you can do is to beg for mercy and spend your entire life begging for mercy because you really are a total mess. Feeling like <laughs> crap about yourself. Yes, right, right. Yes. So the self-esteem issue, you know, yes, <laughs> it yes. becomes a major issue. And then forgiveness, you know, well, well, all right, if you're forgiven, that means you can be open now to receiving the gift, right? But a lot of people seem not to believe they're really forgiven, you see, and it's quite a struggle sometimes. To, yes. You know? So, and then there's anger and pain and many other symptoms that emerge when someone is unable even to feel forgiven. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, the Romans 8, you sit down and read that and you see, oh, so there is something in the human person, in the body-mind complex, that can say yes to the gift of the Spirit. And there's a touching point. All right, there's this point of contact, which uh, Thomas Merton used to call the, the virginal point, the point of this virgin point, as if the whole universe is about to be reborn from that one point, all right, that singularity, all right? So when the Spirit touches your spirit and you know you're a child of God, everything is reborn, all right? And you can do this many times a day. I mean, you can really make it into a spiritual practice. You can say, Oh, for a moment there I forgot, but really I am a child of God. You know, thank you. You know, what um, uh, Holger Yeshe, one of the monks, said to me this morning. You know, Father Francis, of all the Buddhists that spoke in the in the past few days, none of us articulated altruistic love, bodhicitta as you did on several occasions. And he said, thank you. <laughs> it is so needed, right? Yeah. This, this responding to goodness with a willingness to love, a willingness to give of yourself, is so crucial. But I think, I think I have to say that I learned this, you know, of course from my parents and, and that sort of relationship in the family, but also all these years being with people who were suffering and learning from them. There are many Learning times, from them yeah. in the way that they respond, like their altruism in the face of their own suffering yeah. and connecting to someone else. Right, and even being willing to go out of their way to be kind to somebody even though they themselves were suffering right. considerably. That's yeah. powerful. Yeah. So that those are the lessons. And as you might say one of the beautiful things about ministry is that if you really go with it, all right, and let people be the focus of your care, they give you all of this uh, insight that you couldn't have accumulated just on your own. It would have torn you apart. You know, can you imagine thousands and thousands of people that I've known over the years, if I had to go through what all of them went through cumulatively, I wouldn't be here anymore. Maybe right. I'd be a rainbow body. Right? <laughs> yeah. but, but through their sequential teaching, then I could take all that in, and of course through meditation and prayer you take it in and lift it up, and then I can share it with others. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love that you, you talk about it as it's, it's Catholic or Christian, and it's Buddhist in this way too. And you know, Jesus said, "The kingdom of God is within you." And the Buddhists talk about the divine, that like sort of good. That is it, bodhicitta. Said that inherent well, goodness. Of course, bodhicitta is the awakening of the desire to attain enlightenment. But it's also uh, in the bodhisattva path, the motivation to become a Buddha for the sake of everyone. And that is that's a, a tremendous horizon of of historical Buddhism. Right? Yeah. When they begin to realize it's never going to be enough for me to be free of my junk once and for all. Right. Without taking others with me. Right. Right. And in fact, when I discover that, how can I not notice the effect it has on the people around me? Yeah. yeah. I mean, does it go back to this idea that we're kind of all in it together and we're all interconnected? Like the more that I'm practicing myself, the better that I'm impacting you yeah, because of yeah. all of these types of things. Like we're not separate. Mm -hmm. That's right. There's this, uh, uh, you know, you, you call down the light onto the face of the earth by trying to be kind and good and, and available, you know, and serving others. Mm -hmm. And uh, that 
that happens and, and people notice it. All right, let me go back to that example I was telling you about uh, the Dharma brother of Kenpo Acha. And two or three weeks later, I was in a really awkward situation because I wanted so badly. <laughs> now that I think back on it, it seems trivial, but uh, perhaps it's better that it seemed trivial. Uh, because at the time, it didn't seem trivial. I got furiously angry with uh, one of the people who was leading our second tour into eastern Tibet during that summer. And this was the 6th of August, so it was the Feast of the Transfiguration, all right? And so I said, wouldn't it be great to pause today and pray and offer Mass on the Feast of Christ's Body of Light? Since, after all, it's the year 2000, you know, it's a holy year, and also I'm doing this expedition on the Rainbow Body. So what could be more appropriate, right? So all right. these assumptions concepts, preferences, and opinions are building up in my head, all right, and really weighing me down. And I'm about to explode with rage at that the leader of the group, who should have known better, was being completely insensitive to this, completely indifferent, all right? Now, Maybe you can deal with people who are ill and dying through Shamatha Vipassana, but you need a little something special to deal with this kind of rage. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, I was already conscious of where the blessing was coming from. It was coming from Lama Atkum, all right? That wrathful guy, you know, with yeah, the, the, like the fleshy face and yeah. all of that. I knew it was coming from him. And something drove all of that energy of rage right to the top of my skull. And I, it was not only letting go of the anger, it was finding myself in an altered state of consciousness. All right? I mean, I was really in this very different way of seeing the world. It wasn't the first time that I had such an experience, but this was the first time that it had happened out of anger. And also, it stayed with me until well in, toward the end of September, 6th of August, all the way to the end of wow. September. I was floating. Wow. It was powerful. It was really, really powerful. And the other amazing thing about this, actually I've made a sketch of this, it was as if one little tiny point, the same virginal point that Thomas Merton talks yeah. about, was a little tiny dot that had such power that it could explode all of our built-up emotional charge around people, places, things, opinions, titles, who's important, who's great, who's famous, who's got this, who's got that. The whole kit and caboodle exploded. That's very hard to describe in total detail what that felt like, but as you can imagine, it's almost like your whole world has exploded, but instead of being devastated, you feel immense relief, immense relief. Do you think then that we are just like consciousness hanging mm -hmm. out in this body mm -hmm. and that we go back to consciousness? And then I go back and thinking about the guy that you were talking about in the hospital that you wrote your thesis about, like with that, meditation, even though it's about the senses that's physical, it's still a light-based, transcendent kind of thing. Was he becoming more comfortable because he was feeling a transcendent experience, something greater than the body? Exactly. Yes, because you see, what I discovered through that experience with him was that the meditation on the senses is going on Yes, in the brain, but there's more than just the brain involved. And that you have what uh, the great Alexandrian theologian of the third century origin called, right, the spiritual senses. And so the spiritual senses are what are being awakened by this kind of meditation. And uh, in fact, Ignatius of Loyola's method of the spiritual exercise is pretty much the same idea, that oh. by thoroughly visualizing a particular scene in the Bible, right, 
Jesus healing the, the lepers or multiplying the loaves and the fishes, all of that. You visualize it as vividly as possible with all your senses. All right, You awaken the spiritual senses so that you're actually there on a certain mystical plane. You are engaged with what is an eternal reality being enacted. Okay, And some people use the term the imaginal not imaginary, but the imaginal, because you've gained access to something that is at least as real as we are. So, so this is where it gets interesting, because you begin to see that the, the level of peace, joy, and luminosity that was on the face of that dying man several months later communicated the fact that he had broken through Okay, and he knew he was not only his dying body; he was much more. Wow! Right, and he was ready to move with it. And I had the same experience, even with one guy, same illness years later, who uh, really didn't believe any of this. You know, I mean, he was you know a quote non-believer, but his wife insisted, you know, on praying with him and having me come over and guide him and I made the tape for him too and everything and uh, and when he died I don't know, I'm almost afraid to say some of the stuff that happened after he died on, on, on video but well he made a bit of a nuisance of himself afterwards <laughs> <laughs> because he still had some attachments to the things of this world, and he also had some injustices that he wanted to sort out. But we eventually convinced, convinced him to not do too much of that anymore. <laughs> does that mean? Do, do, does it mean like? Do you feel that there's like that place where you are, um, or you like a person, a being is hanging out in like a Bardo-esque place before they go further? And that you can make a nuisance of yourself or a, a be yeah. a benefit to others of yourself. Yes, yes, for you a can. period, you can. And in this particular situation, it's a good example of why the spiritual guide has to be very careful, because precisely because he was not really a believer. All right, you can't get them to the point of purification and inner freedom huh. that you need in order to do this properly okay. and then the person can cause harm uh, this is ghosts you know this is uh, some of the negative energy phenomena that are associated in post-mortem situations all right and so in that case um, we should have emphasized more that whatever the outcome of these meditations whether he was going to be healed whether he would die in peace whatever it was going to be that he always had to keep a high and, and pure sense of love, you know. He had to keep that. Uh, and once again, we come back to bodhicitta, you know, that I'm doing this because I, I care about other human beings, I care about my family, I care about even my enemies. I, I want them to be well, you know. Because I think that he didn't quite have the, the, the detachment from the family and he didn't have the forgiveness of his enemies that he right. should have had. Right, right, right. And he paid me a visit and he said, I want to thank you. Now I realize that it wasn't, you know, just a bunch of nonsense that you were telling me. I mean, and I got this, like this, this sphere of light comes into my bedroom late at night and I'm getting this message pretty wild. You know? Wow. <laughs> but he was uh, able to move he was able to move around because of what he had learned from this five senses meditation. I have so many associations to what you're saying. One is, um, did you ever read The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Tolstoy? I know the story, but I don't know if I actually read it cover to cover. It's a short story. Yeah. It's worth reading because it's relatively speaking short. But he has an illumination experience at the end, Ivan Ilyich. Uh, and he's kind of a disgruntled, angry dude <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. who's like, his wife's like upset that he's dying because it's going to upset her um, tea party, you know? <laughs> and then, yeah, it's great. And then he's like, so he's very angry. And then, of course, it's this sense of the peasant, right? Who's like the, nat the person who's the farmer and knows about nature and herbs, who's like washing his feet and talking to him. And it's the bodhicitta, the love, the connection, and Ivan Ilyich, at the end of his life, has an illumination experience mm -hmm. with the, this peasant, Gerasim. And mm -hmm. it reminds me of what 
you're talking about. And so I think about that, this kind of transformation. And then I also think about, you know, going back again to the rainbow body and Kenpo Acho and Thomas Aquinas. And this is all from you. I'm not pulling this from I know. I know. Okay. <laughs> but where well, Aquinas um, describes the qualities of the resurrection body. Yes. Subtlety, agility, and so on and so forth. Right? Well, and, and moving, mm -hmm. and how, but I, my understanding was that Kenpo Acho could move through walls yeah. while he was alive. Yeah. So, yeah. and I know that some of these, um, med, um, you know, uh, I've read about it in uh, Qigong masters and so forth can do this, and it's kind of like, I'm like, what? How am I supposed to understand that? They're not dead, they're doing it, or and you're saying in the risen body, Aquinas talks about it. How do, can you help me understand this, if it's possible to understand? Well, the, uh, yeah, in the biographies of Milarepa and Rechungpa, for example, you can find uh, des descriptions of their experiences, you know, passing through walls and mountains and all of this stuff, and, uh, and flying, you know, this phenomenon, levitation. Now, in a Buddhist uh, frame of reference, this is moving from the, the spiritual senses, all right, into the subtle connection between consciousness and matter, such that matter is lived as empty. So it's empty, meaning it is produced interdependently by causes and conditions. Okay, it doesn't mean it's not there. It means it's produced by the concatenation of causes and effects. What, what word is that? Concatenation, the chaining together of causes and conditions that bring about visible phenomena. But they are ultimately empty of metaphysical substance. So, a person who has that realization can pass through walls, can pass through rocks and so on, or can shape rocks with their hand, you know, or put footprints in the rock, you know, because matter then becomes plastic, becomes fluid, all right? And uh, there's that famous handprint in, at the Asura cave in uh, Parping in Nepal, you know, which is um, the hand of Padmasambhava, you know, the, that handprint. And then, you know, there's another story and it's from relatively recent times. The, uh, the southern Italian saint who was very close to my mother's family, uh, his oh. name was Saint Gerard Maiella, okay, who was uh, a tailor, you know, and he was noted for ill health and being very frail and all of this. But when he would go into mystical ecstasies, he could bend iron. Wow. You know, and wow. do all kinds of amazing things. There's the lead, the story. I mean, and we're talking about 1700s, so there were eyewitnesses who wrote this down. It wasn't something like you know 2,000 years ago. The eyewitnesses actually saw him haul a boat out of the Bay of Naples in a storm, all by himself. All right, things like that. And the and I actually saw the iron, you know, that he bent. And if you go to Eastern Tibet, there were some siddhas who also could magically bend iron or, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. So there's that uh, ability that emerges through contemplative practice, all right, in certain gifted individuals. And it's, so it's like, I kind of circle back to two things. One is that I keep having to, I have to ask you this one question, but I want to ask you these other questions because now you're giving me all these other things to ask about. <laughs> but it's just like, one is, so we'll go this direction first, and then I'm coming back. I'm going to come back to death. So this history, right, from the birth of humanity, where these kinds of fascinating or uncanny or miraculous, extraordinary phenomenon happen, right? Mm -hmm. And for some reason, and maybe it's just since the Enlightenment, I don't know, but we don't, currently we don't really look at it. And you know, we, we don't really, science doesn't really study it, or they write it off as like mystical, or it's not really true, or it's irrelevant. And I have a beautiful I, <laughs> quote from you that says, well, yeah, here, let me just read this. This is a quote from your book on page 333, um, The Rainbow Body. People are not encouraged or aided to connect 
existentially with their innermost sense of being. The problem is not about language or capacity. It is about denying human beings a faculty that they already have, a faculty that has been nurtured for millennia by some of the most remarkable people who have ever lived. This is the price our world has paid for material progress. This is in the same section of the book where you talk about conventional versus ultimate truth with Buddhism, like conventional being rationality and ultimate being contemplative. Mm -hmm. what, what is going on with this? Mm. Yeah, because it almost looks as if, uh, you know, some, some sooty cloud came over the, the minds of the opinion leaders of Europe sometime in the 18th century, and uh, they took charge, all right, and made everybody live in this sooty cloud, mm -hmm. which of course literally became the sooty cloud of pollution and, uh, and colonialism and slavery and many other things, you know. And we keep saying, oh, but how wonderful, because they invented, I don't know, vaccines or hygienic hospitals or something like that. But then when you really put all the pieces together, uh, we could have had hygienic hospitals, you know, and many other kinds of positive things without the dark sooty cloud. I want to just go back to this one question that I started with. So how do you feel about death? Are you, what do you think of it? Like, are you afraid of it? Are you kind of like bewildered or not bewildered, but like, oh, well, how do you, are you afraid of death? I'm sometimes afraid of death. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'm not, sometimes I'm like, I'm very afraid. And then I talk to you or I read something and I'm like, oh, it sounds kind of adventurous. But <laughs> yeah. so. Well, of course, I've been thinking about it since I was 10 years old. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Are you scared of it? <laughs> you know, there's something, Brother David often brings this out too. Uh, one of the meditation topics called the instruments of good works in the rule of St. Benedict is to keep death daily before your eyes. <laughs> But you break down that, and especially a good abbot will discuss this with the monks in the morning reflection, all right? Because, you know, in a Benedictine monastery, you read a portion of the rule, the abbot is supposed to comment on that portion, and then they go on to business, okay? And so every once in a while that one comes up. And what does a good abbot say? Uh, he says, all right, this is not to get you depressed, about an inevitable fact, it's to enable you to know why your motivation needs to be reawakened daily. Mm. Your motivation to attain holiness, your motivation to serve others, your motivation to be here, you know, in the concrete circumstances of our lives as a community, okay? Death is inevitable. Right? The, the, the Tibetans put it brilliantly also. Death is inevitable. You know, we have this precious human birth, right? Uh, your karma is also inevitable, so you better get to work. <laughs> you know, it's a motivational uh, orientation. Uh, so in that sense, keeping death daily before your eyes, I also like to think of it as not only motivational in the sense of I better get my, my rear end going, you know, but also it's an it's a confession of radical trust. All right, I'm going to live today. I'm offering everything to God. Before the day begins, before the day begins, I'm going to say with all the courage I can, even if today I'm going to die, I'm going to do, I'm going to give this day to you. Joy, suffering, sorrow, and even my last breath. It's all given. So that gives you immense courage immense courage. Uh, it, you know, we talk about faith, you know, salvation by faith and all of that in, in Pauline writings of the New Testament, but what is he really saying is it just this radical commitment, you know, that I dedicate my whole life yes. because I've received the grace of God, all right, back to God, and it's, it's all there. So, do I fear death? A few weeks ago I had not such good um, results from a blood test and whatnot, all right. So this is always very good because it teaches you that you've made a few mistakes and you need to re-equilibrate your body, right? And, and I did several days of meditation on the real possibility that I could become ill and die. And I did go through a little bit of fear. I went through a little bit of fear and I looked at that 
I examined that the same, you know, as you would in meditation about anger or any other emotion or feeling. And I worked through that. You know, and once again, I come back to this statement of courage, statement of total dedication, statement of total openness to love, right? And the fear really does mm. dissolve. Wow. You know, it really does. Last week I interviewed someone who was talking about how during childbirth she had a vision of a rainbow. And I, I was just like, I, and so I told her about you. I told her about your book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you know, might be getting a phone call. Um, <laughs> but it's like she saw a vision of, a, of this glorious rainbow when she was giving birth. And then, you know, we, we know about the rainbow body. And then I, I, I hope this is okay to also ask you about, like, also her mom who was very attached to this, her family pet, their dog. After the dog had passed, her mom was taking a walk in the, in the garden. She had asked her mom, she's like, what ha- you know, did you, did you feel anything after this, this pet died? She's like, well, it's actually interesting that you say that because I took a walk in the forest and I saw a rainbow. Wow. And I just didn't, I was like, you're, like what do you make of that? Well, first of all, the birth uh, is rather interesting. Uh, the thought that the, the rainbow would appear at the time of birth as if to say uh, perhaps what, I mean, even whether or not there's reincarnation, but something returned from somebody who was very high up, Ooh, right? You yeah. Know? Something, some blessing came down uh, from someone else into that child at the time of birth. But we can also say this, that joy, ecstasy, right? That the, the act of giving birth can be very painful, but it yes. can also be ecstatic. Right, 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 right. right, right. Uh, even one of the elder women of the tribe this week was talking about her own experience of giving birth and a cat climbing on her belly as she was about to give birth and suddenly giving birth to her kittens. Oh my God. Simultaneously. All right. Fantastic. You know, and purring in ecstasy. All right. Ah. As that happened. So there is, uh, and many women will, will, will say that this was a very spiritual experience to give birth. And then of course, as you probably know, the the giving birth in in the in the water tank, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of thing, right. which diminishes diminishes the tension and pain, mm-hmm. and uh, makes this experience even more uh, ecstatic and 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 spiritually meaningful. So that that makes a lot of sense. I think some people who have had um, you know a deep loving relationship and have had a sexual uh, experience together have also reported light and rainbow light. All right. So there is an ecstatic uh, quality within the human mind stream that takes the form sometimes of this rainbow light. All right. So this also suggests that the kind of meditation that one might do on rainbow light, some of the things that I taught this week, some of the things that Anne Klein has been teaching also from her Dzogchen training, uh, is about the imaginal Re, reflowering of our ab- ability to engage with rainbow light, which then engages actively with the life of ourselves. So there is something going on here uh, with the material body and its subtle body doppelganger, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See, mm-hmm. so, the, so the the subtle body and the material body intersect at a kind of, you know, virginal point, if we might say so, uh, where light and matter yes, exchange, yes, 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 yes. exchange their, their uh, what we say, particle and wave qualities. And the, the, uh, the, the power of meditation to enable what we call the mind or consciousness, to get back to that earlier part of your question, to get consciousness to engage with and even shift, all right, matter, yeah. the wave particle, you know, uh, flip-flop, 
there that goes on is I think what is really happening, whether it's preparing for tuktam or preparing for rainbow body or and so many of these other uh, phenomena, incorruption, ecstatic experiences, uh, other uh, paranormal manifestations seem to indicate that there are ecstatic contemplative states that, uh, can, that occasion uh, bioplasticity mm-hmm. All right? mm-hmm. on dramatic as well as subtle ways. Beautiful. Okay? Yeah. And, it's, and uh, this is the area of research which I hope more laboratories will begin to uh, take up. You know, whether it's going to be vo- biophotons, whether it's going to be the chromotherapy route, whether it's going to be ever more subtle EEG kinds of research, uh, whether it will be more uh, effective and carefully prepared self-reporting mm-hmm. of uh, inner experiences. Uh, all of these things are being developed, including by some of our young researchers. And uh, I think we're about to move into an era of very helpful research in this area. It's not just about, you know, um, measuring heartbeat or oxygen levels. It's much that we're getting instrumentation that's much more subtle. So uh, I'm again optimistic about the contribution of scientific research to this fascinating area of, I mean, perennial area of human interest. But I don't think that it takes anything away from the integrity of the many world cultures that in almost an boundless variety of ways talk about inner experiences of light, transformation of the body, the connection between mind and matter, and our eternal destiny. Absolutely. It's a combination of it all, of the the spiritual, the contemplative, the scientific. Fantastic. Well, thank you (laughs) on that. I think that's a great way, a great ending for us. That was Father Francis Tiso. Thank you so much, Father Tiso. Please come back next time on Wonderstruck when I'll be talking about all things Tantra with Harvard Divinity School professor, Esalen Board member and teacher, author, Tantra practitioner, and social entrepreneur, Sravana Borkataki Varma. For more information about Wonderstruck, our guests, and some really exciting upcoming events, check out wonderstruck.org. And please follow the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and subscribe on YouTube. We truly want to hear from you with your feedback, reviews, and ratings. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at WonderstruckPod. Wonderstruck is produced by Wonderstruck Productions, along with the teams at Bailey Newman and Freetime Media. Special thanks to Brian O'Kelly, Eliana Elefthru, and Travis Reese. Thank you for listening. And remember... Be open to the wonder in your own life.